work out. Matthew 26, I haven't even got the reference on me. Verse 47. Jesus was still speaking when Judas, one of the twelve disciples, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, and sent by the chief priests and the elders. The traitor had given the crowd a signal. The one I kiss is the one you want. Arrest him. Judas went straight to Jesus and said, Peace be with you, teacher. And he kissed him. Jesus answered, Be quick about it, friend. Then they came up, arrested Jesus, and held him tight. One of those who were with Jesus drew his sword and struck at the high priest's slave, cutting off his ear. Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place. All who take the sword will die by the sword. Don't you know that I could call on my father for help, and at once he would send me more than twelve armies of angels? But in that case, how could the scriptures come true, which say that this is what must happen? Then Jesus spoke to the crowd. Did you have to come with swords and clubs to capture me, as though I were an outlaw? Every day I sat down and taught in the temple, and you did not arrest me. But all this has happened in order to make what the prophets write in the scriptures come true. Then all the disciples left him and ran away. Well, I'm still here. They haven't come to take me away yet. (laughs) Can you hear me all right? Good. Um, Yes, thank you, Chris, for that um, thing about the people arrested in other countries. How can I get this down now? That was very interesting. (laughs) That always happens to me with the flowers. (laughs) So get it right out. Woof, it goes down. Once it's gone, that's it. You had it. Right. Where are we? We've not read our passage. Thank you for those that did a bit of drama. That was good, actually, um, that you did it like that. Um, now, just to give you a bit of background about the arrest of Jesus, remember the Easter week we're looking at? The sun, it starts with the Sunday and the triumphal entry when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. On the Monday evening, they're at Bethany in the house of Mary, Martha and Lazarus. We were looking at their house this morning for those of you who were here. Talking, and Roger was talking about when Lazarus was raised from the dead. And they gave him a meal on the Monday, the Easter Monday. And at that meal, Mary anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And from the Monday morning through to the Thursday, Jesus was in the temple every day teaching the people. And you've got lots, if you want to read Luke, you've got lots of parables, and you've got uh, Matthew 24, you know, about the prophecy, and all that comes in in this time. Now normally they would have had their Passover meal on the Friday night, because Saturday was the Passover, but it was allowed to have it on the Thursday. So Jesus asked his disciples to prepare it. Now you should, I'm sure you know all this. And they went, and we think it was probably held in the upper room in the home of John Mark in Jerusalem. And it could have been the same upper room as the Pentecost one. Um, we went, we went to Israel, we, they took us to an upper room, and it was huge, I mean it was as big as this, if not bigger. But anyway, so they have their meal, and during the meal of course Jesus tells them he's going to die and they don't understand. 
and then he's also said someone was going to betray him and we know that he told Peter that it was going to be Judas and passed him a piece of bread and Judas went out during the evening to um, talk to the priests about how he was going to betray Jesus and the disciples stayed with Jesus they had the rest of their supper presumably and chatted and Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit and lots of other things and we're getting late now and it's getting to probably about 11 o'clock in the evening and Jesus had already said beforehand he wanted to go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray so of course Judas would have known this and last week Roger looked at this didn't he and it was a very precious night I thought when we looked at the Garden of Gethsemane and all that happened and Roger um, said reminded us that Jesus actually shrank from what he was going to have to endure on the cross Um, but in the end he said no father not my will but thine be done and um, he challenged us about being forgive, you know, about submitting to God's will in our lives. And also he challenged us about prayer, because if you remember, Jesus said to the disciples, watch and pray, and they fell asleep about two or three times. So um, that was what Roger brought to us last week. Now today, we've got, of course, we've got the arrest. We're still in the Garden of Gethsemane. The scene is still the same. And it, but this actual bit that we read only lasted a few moments, I should think 10 minutes at the most. And it reminds me of a play, a scene in a play. The stage is set. I want you to sort of imagine that to start with, and we've had our bit of a drama. But I'll just describe it again. The Garden of Gethsemane is in a valley called the Kidron Valley. It's about 100 yards wide. It's not that big. Fairly big, but not too big. Uh, on the east side... If you're looking at me, on the east side you see the walls of Jerusalem, high walls. You might get an odd light perhaps on the top, but really it would be quite dark. On the other side you see this huge hill called the Mount of Olives. And so they're in the centre, and they're in this grove or orchard, whatever it is, of olive trees. And olive trees aren't very big. And I know now you go and you can look at the, what's left of it, and there's these huge um, trunks. But 2,000 years ago, so it probably just would look like we would look, see olive trees today, just normal, you know, with ordinary trunks. Um, and so Jesus, obviously, we know, has prayed. And now we're back on centre stage. Jesus is in centre stage. He comes onto stage. He says to the disciples, wake up. And they're sort of rubbing their eyes. It's very dark. Very, very dark. Unless the moon was out. Now, I don't know if the moon was out, but, you know, they'd be able to see a bit. But if not, it would be very dark. And it would be very quiet. You wouldn't hear a mouse. Anyway, um, I think it's probably about one o'clock, early hours of the morning. And all of a sudden, from a distance, they could hear a a, a commotion tramping of feet and then the darkness is broken as Judas comes in on stage followed by the temple guards and the priests carrying torches so suddenly the whole place is all lit up Um, they go towards Jesus and Judas leads the way and he gives Jesus a kiss on the cheek as we've read because that was the sign that he arranged because in the dark they'd all look the same because all Jews had beards and long probably reasonable length hair so they'd all look much the same and of course Jesus calls him friend as we know and this was the arranged sign and then the guards come forward attempt to arrest Jesus Peter grabs his sword I'm gonna and knocks off the first thing he comes to is this 
chuckled Malchus's ear and you can imagine ah screech and uh, you know a commotion as people are pushing the disciples away and they you know are trying to attack you can see it in your mind's eye can't you and uh, Jesus says no no and he touches the man's ear and heals it and then Jesus said here I am basically you know I've been there all week you could have come and arrested me at any time but now is your time and he just stands there and they presumably bind his hands and they lead him on and the disciples are sort of you know absolutely bewildered they can't you know there's been all this panic they were going to help him they were going to save him and now he's gone and he just gave up like that imagine although Jesus had been telling them that he was going to die he was going to be executed they just couldn't understand so the next thing is panic what do we do they'll be coming for us next we better scarper quick so into the city to hide and then the scene returns to its darkness and quietness and that's it just like that only lasts a few moments so what can we learn and when I looked at that I thought what can I say about that you know it's you just can repeat the story like I've just done and then you sort of think can't think of anything else so I said Lord what do you you know what can you show me out of this passage so what I'm going to give you now is what the Lord's given me it's not me it's what he's given me right I want to look at the actors in the play we've got Judas we've got the priests and the guards we've got the disciples and we've got Jesus and then I want to see if there's anything that we can learn from their behaviour from the whole scene First of all, I'd like us, if you've got your Bibles, to turn to 1 John chapter 2. Now this is a verse that Billy Graham, because I was saved under Billy Graham, not literally, but you know, in his ministry, and um, this is a verse that was always coming into his studies and things. Um, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the craving of sinful man, the lust of the eyes and the boasting of what he has done comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now, in the modern trance, oh, in the AV, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, that's the body, the lust of the eyes, what you can see, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now in the modern translations, a lot of flesh words has been changed to appetites, but in the original Greek, the word is flesh. Right? And Billy Graham used to say in a nutshell, this verse of saying, our three enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I want to bring this into what we're going to look at. So when I say the flesh, I mean our bodies, our minds, our souls, all that is sensual, if you like, about us. Now let's look at the temple guards and the priests. Now, I don't know if you know the Vatican have an army, don't they? And they all get dressed up in lots of lovely colour. Well, (laughs) the priests had a little army as well, so they were temple guards. And no doubt the guards were very religious, just as much as the priests. They knew the Old Testament. They obeyed the letter of the law of Moses too, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's and putting a few extra dots in and a few extra crosses in. But their hearts were far from God. Otherwise they'd have recognised who Jesus was wouldn't they? One or two did but as a whole they didn't in Hebrews 3 and 4 God or Paul describes the Israelites as having hard hearts and I believe this is what these priests and this group of people had 
They were proud of their own righteousness, full of themselves. They were haughty and had little concern of the needs of others. Their flesh was very strong in them. They loved their position, their power and being in control. The world was very strong in them. But behind all their scheming was the arch enemy, wasn't it? Satan or the devil. And he was using their weaknesses for the flesh and the world to get rid of Jesus. Remember he tried to get rid of the baby Jesus with Herod. He tried to get Jesus stoned several times. And, but now was Satan's time. And he was going to get Jesus on the cross and get rid of it, or so he thought. What about Judas? I love old Judas. We've done a study on Judas. It's quite interesting. Anyway, Psalm 41, verse 9 says, Even my chosen friend whom I trusted, he who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now Judas, I don't believe he knew that he was this man. I don't believe that he knew anything about Satan wanting to get rid of Jesus. But he happens to have been the main player. Satan was using him. And if you look at Psalm 55, 13 to 14, it also describes Judas. Jesus refers to him in John 13, 18. And in John 17, 12, he says, None has been lost except the one doomed for destruction. The AV calls him the son of perdition. So he was prophesied hundreds of years before that he was going to be the one to betray Jesus. Now, he wouldn't have known that. I'm sure. So why did he betray Jesus? He's been with him for three years. He's seen the miracles, heard the sermons. I believe he had other weaknesses, the flesh and the world. Now, we know he carried the purse for the group. Now, why didn't Matthew do that? He was a tax collector. He could count. But for some reason, Jesus, Judas did it. And I think people would give money to Jesus as thank yous. When he healed somebody, oh, I want to say thank you. Take some money. So into Judas's pocket as a treasurer. And then we know that some rich women supported Jesus and the disciples. So they would come to Judas and say, there's £50 or whatever equivalent. That will buy you meals for a week into his pocket. And the Bible says he enjoyed keeping the church. But he also pilfered money out of the bag for his own means. So he wasn't a very honest person. He loved money and the things that money could buy. And so he loved the world, didn't he? The things, the lust of the eyes that you see. And I don't believe his heart was devoted to Jesus like the other disciples because his heart was full of greed. That's the flesh. What could he get to buy to feed his own person? And of course the devil was able to use his weaknesses in his character to get him to betray Jesus. Now I think that Judas never really understood Jesus' attitude towards money. Because Jesus didn't care about money, did he? He gave it all up. And I think that also Judas had the purse. They come across poor people sometimes and Jesus said, Judas, give them some money. So he was always giving it away. Which was brilliant, lovely. And I think that Judas respected Jesus because of that, but he never really loved him. But then the final crunch comes. Do you remember I said on the Monday, they went to Mary Martha Lazarus' house. Mary broke an expensive um, jar of spikenard or something, which was a year's wages. Now, in our terms, 25,000 average wage, so they reckon. Well, not many people actually get that, but, you know, he, Judas, objected. He says in John chapter 12, verses 4 to 16, let's just read it because I think it's quite important. 
Um, I can find John. John chapter 12. I think we'll be looking this, at this in a week or two with Roger. Verses 4 to 6. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. That's what he said. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, says John, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So I believe this was the final crunch. He'd seen Jesus as being a man who didn't love money, who loved people, who cared about people. All of a sudden he was allowing this extravagance on himself. And he thought, hypocrite. Jesus is a hypocrite. And I think that that indulgence... Jesus tells us why. He blessed the lady. It got up Judas's nose, basically. And he lost his respect for Jesus. I don't believe Judas was all bad. I believe he tried to be sincere in following Jesus. But this disappointment in what he thought was what Jesus shouldn't have done turned to resentment. Resentment is a terrible thing, as we know, and it turns to anger and hatred. And I believe that's why he betrayed Jesus, not just for the 30 pieces of silver, which wasn't a huge amount of money. Anyway, that's conjecture, but that's what I think. So again, we see in Judas the world and the flesh, and of course the devil behind the whole thing. What about the disciples? They had right motives. They loved Jesus. They wanted to follow God. But the flesh got in the way, didn't it? Peter brought a sword. His attitude was, I can handle it. I can do it my way. That's the flesh. And even after Jesus, in Luke chapter 22, verse 38, the message Bible is very clear on this. I'm not saying it's a literal translation, but it gives us the right feeling. They said, look, Master, two swords. But Jesus said, enough of that. No more sword talk. So Jesus said, no, we don't want swords. But Peter, he still took his sword with him to Gethsemane, didn't he? Yes, I can do this. I can help. And we know what he did. Self-confident, proud Peter, leader of men, thought he could do God's work his way. But Jesus was not going to do that. Jesus was following God's will. But when Jesus saw, when Peter saw Jesus surrendering to the guards, he ran off. So his flesh, I can do it my way, turned to fear, worry, and all those sort of emotions can't do it my way. What's God doing? Let's run away and scarper. The Bible in Romans 8 verse 8 says, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Or the AV says, those controlled by the flesh cannot please God. And we're talking to Christians, not to non-Christians. We know they can't please God. So we looked at the three types of groups, the religious leaders and priests, Judas, the disciples. What about Jesus? He was about to face a terrible ordeal, wasn't he? And we know he shrank from it and in Gethsemane he prayed and his final prayer was, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. So he, he kept his integrity as the Son of God and Saviour of the world. Even here, in this scene in Gethsemane, he displayed kindness and selflessness, he healed the man's ear, he displayed forgiveness, he called Judas his friend, and I don't think he was being sarcastic, because Jesus wouldn't be sarcastic. I think he was saying, you are my friend, like that. 
um, he, dismay, he displayed forgiveness to the disciples because he didn't rebuke them severely because he said you horrible lot of people but he just said no so he was a man of peace to the end Isaiah 53 7 said he was led like a lamb to the slaughter he showed no revenge and he didn't retaliate in any way there's no hint of the flesh there's no fear or worry he's perfectly surrendered to God's will the flesh, the world and the devil have no just no influence on him whatsoever he's quietly submissive, he's humble he's resting in God and he's in control of himself and yet he's determined, he's single minded he's got a mission, a terrible mission to accomplish and I don't know about you but when I look at Jesus on this particular stage I see an aura of holiness that you don't see prior to this time from this moment, from his arrest I think, you might say it's from Gethsemane but I see it from the arrest right through his trial and everything it's like this aura of holiness it's, he's a different Jesus and I think that's really powerful but anyway now what about us? We have the same enemies, the world, the flesh and the devil. We're all, we're all tempted of course, but it's not temptation's a problem, it's giving in to it as you know and how easily we give in to it. The world lures us. We call it worldliness, materialism, love of money, possessions. Advertising, that doesn't help, does it? Encourages us to get more. And we see worldliness in Jesus, of course. He was a bit like Scrooge, loved to handle the money. Or did he prefer to spend it? I don't know. We see the priests who love the world, sense of power and control over us. Have we got a position in life? Are we a father, a mother, a senior, a manager? Do we like to control other people? Question. What's the world? What about the flesh? The flesh calls to us our sensual appetites, our minds and our bodies, don't we? We know of the obvious sexual immorality, but what about other areas? What about habits? Overindulgence in food, alcohol, television or computers, whatever. Addictions of the past still hanging on. What about fear? Fear of pain. Fear of man, what other people will think of us. Pride, selfishness, anger, criticism, resentment, unforgiveness, self-righteousness, worry. That's a big one. Worry, isn't it? I have problems with that at times. All these are rooted in our flesh, in the inner man. Our soul, our mind, it's the inner man. The devil uses our weaknesses in these areas of world and flesh for his purposes. He can attack in many ways. He might be like in Genesis 3 verse 7. Sin is crouching at your door, Abel. Remember? No, Cain. Cain killed Abel. And the devil's like, standing behind the door saying, Come on, come on, you know, just a little bit. You know, you like this, don't you? You really would like a pole bar of chocolate or whatever it is. That's sin crouching at our door. Or the devil can be like um, Ephesians chapter 6, which we looked at very briefly with Roger last week. Arrows coming in all the time. Bang, 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 bang. Everywhere you look, you see, getting bombarded from with a particular temptation, whatever it is. Like looking in shop windows, isn't it? Oh, I like that dress. No, actually, those shoes are rather nice. Oh, I wouldn't mind a coat like that. That's a bit, reminds me of that. What about coming in like a roaring lion? 1 Peter 5 8. Sometimes he does just bang. And you think, what's happened? Oh, I 
can't cope with this. Or he can't even come as an angel of light to Corinthians 11.14. And sometimes us Christians can be very hurtful to each other. We can say some awful things sometimes. And even the devil will twist what the Bible says sometimes. That's an angel of light. So, does the world, the flesh, or the devil control me? How can I be free? The answer is obviously to be like Jesus. But how does this work out practically? I'm not Jesus, am I? You're not Jesus. Don't look like Jesus. Ephesians 6 we looked at briefly with Roger last week and that was confirmation because I already had it in mind to look at it but we're not actually going to look at it unless you want to turn to it yourselves and scan it through while I'm talking because of the sake of time and it's talking about battling you know the Roman soldier puts his armour on the breastplate of righteousness, belt, truth all the other bits and pieces and we're not talking, Paul's not talking about a spiritual a, a physical battle he's talking about a spiritual battle it's not anything like penance or becoming a monk or a nun or um, starving yourselves to make yourself more holy or even fighting the naturals. No, no, not that sort of thing. Jesus knew about spiritual battles, didn't he? He cast out lots of demons. In verse 53 in our reading tonight he says he could call on legions of angels. So he knew about spiritual things. Ephesians 6 verse 2 says we struggle against rulers, authorities, powers and spiritual forces in the heavenly. So our battle is about our flesh and the world and the devil but basically it's all going on out there. It's a spiritual battle we're in and if we could get perhaps our eyes sorted out about that we might be able to get our flesh and our and the world and the temptation sorted out and three times in this passage Paul says fight no he doesn't does he he says stand three times the only weapon you've got is the sword of the spirit which is the bible you can attack with the bible or defend with it but you do not fight you merely stand God is the one that fights. God is the one that moves. In the Old Testament, many times you'll read the battle belongs to the Lord. Scripture tells us we don't need to be struggling against the world, the flesh and the devil. And you know, the devil's lied to the world, hasn't he? And said, Jesus, we don't want Jesus. He's lied to us Christians too. Because we think, we work a bit harder at being a Christian. Try harder. Come to the ray of repentance like the Salvationists do and repent and start all over. That's not scriptural. I'm sorry. We do need to repent and confess our sins on a regular basis, keep short accounts of God. But we should not be living our lives in condemnation and defeatism. This is what the devil wants. Turn to Romans chapter 8 verse 1. And if you don't, if you don't know this verse, I would admonish you to learn it off by heart. It is such an important verse for the Christian. Because the devil will come and tell you all sorts of lies in your Christian life about not being good enough. And uh, it used to for me, I was very convinced I was the most lousiest Christian on the planet. Um, and that's exactly what he wants us to live in defeat so that we're useless. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. No condemnation. We've been freed. We can stop beating ourselves up. Hooray! 
<laughs> and live in victory. I'm not saying we always do, but we can. The poss- I believe the possibility is there. Let's turn to another a very important scripture, but keep your fingers in Romans because we're going to come back to it in a minute. Colossians chapter 2. After Philippians, Colossians chapter 2 and verses 9 to 12, which I'll read for you. 9 to 12, right. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Power and authority meaning Satan and all the what's going on in the heavenlies in whom you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature not with a circumcision done by the hands of men but with the circumcision done by Christ having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead that's a difficult scripture but what it's saying was your sinful nature has been cut away by Christ's death on the cross that's what circumcision is it's a cutting so your sinful nature your flesh, power, the power that your flesh has has been cut away by Christ's death on the cross the old man that was controlled by the flesh or the sinful nature was buried with Christ and the new man has been raised with Christ and is controlled by the Holy Spirit and this is what we teach in baptism but you know something, we teach it in baptism and we walk away and forget it, don't we? It's not written just for baptism, it's written for us now, today. Let's look, go back to Romans chapter 6. I want to read a fairly long passage, but it is an important passage. And I would ask you too, if, you, if this is all new to you or you just don't understand, these are difficult passages, they're not, you know baby reading, they are meaty passages, go home and read them again, the Colossians 1 and Romans chapter 6 and chapter 8 if you've got time, Romans 6 verses 3 to 14 I'm going to read don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father we too may live a new life if we've been united with him like this in his death we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection we're not talking about the future we're talking about now he's already been raised isn't he but we know that our old self our old man our old sinful nature our flesh if you like was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin now if we died with Christ we believe that we will also live with him we're not talking about the future we're talking about now for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead he cannot die again death no longer has mastery over him the death he died he died to sin once for all and the life he lives now in heaven he lives to God in the same way count yourselves dead to sin the AV says reckon yourself dead to sin you could say understand no that you are dead to sin but alive to God in Jesus Christ what it's saying basically is we died we are free from our old sinful nature so understand that you are dead in your sinful nature spiritually we're talking about 
but we're alive to God we're tuned in to God through the Holy Spirit sin need not reign but we just merely offer ourselves to God say God I cannot do this being a Christian it's too hard but here I am you're free because Christ has set you free and you're under God's grace and his living Christ in you can live out but we've got to allow it haven't we Christ is living in us we don't have to live defeated lives he rose again victorious so we could be living a resurrected if you like now victorious life 2 Corinthians we sang shine Jesus shine and one of those verses was mirrored here may our lives tell our story changing from glory to glory 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we are being being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the spirit and chapter 4 verse 16 says inwardly we are being renewed day by day Philippians 1.5 says God will complete the work he started in you we don't have to be working at being a Christian you know lashing ourselves on the back like the Catholics do because we've <laughs> disobeyed well they do some of them do and we may not do it literally but you know what I mean you get really down oh I've let it all down again I'm a miserable Christian I'm not doing I'm not reading my Bible today I just can't cope with this God doesn't want us to be like that. He wants us to be victorious. And as I said, these verses that we read, they're not just for baptism, they are for now, today, every day. Um, So, let's start by resting in God and he will do it. So we've looked at the three groups, we've compared the attitude of Jesus. He was humble, surrendered to God, and trusting and resting in God, and standing against the devil. Someone wrote... We look on holiness as a virtue, humility as a grace, and love as a gift to be sought from God. But, Christ himself is everything I ever need. He lives out his life in me if I let him. We don't need to concentrate. I'm not saying it's it's right to read the scripture, don't get me wrong. It's right to look at our, examine yourselves, things like that. But, we don't have to... um, be thinking, I must be more holy, I must be um, work harder, read my Bible more, or whatever. Just let him live out in you. It's simple, isn't it? The old nature died on the cross. It is dead spiritually. We're actually seated in the heavenlies right now. We can't see it. We can't feel it. That's what the Bible tells us in Ephesians. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I could never understand this verse. It's taken me 40 years to understand this verse. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, and the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is a very deep verse. A very deep verse. And I just pray that each of you, you know, if you haven't, assimilated it already will come to know it because it's fantastic if we want to attain the holiness of Jesus we've looked at this aura of holiness I think that you see when he's standing here giving in to his arrest no retaliation no anything just a peaceful holy submissive wonderful person and I believe if we cast all our care upon him for he cares for us we can 
have that rest and that peace and that humility and that joy. Not to the same extent, because obviously we are mortal. But do you know what I mean? And what happier people we would be, what happier community we would be. So we can stop struggling, let the Holy Spirit take control. And I want us to close in hymn number 572, please, um, Stephen. Rejoice, rejoice, Christ is in you. No, I haven't got a hymn book. Can I borrow your hymn book, please? Thank you. Um, when you sing it, I want you, first verse, to start off. Rejoice, rejoice, Christ is in me. The hope of glory in my heart. He lives, he's lived, his breath is in me. Arise, a mighty arm, and we arise. Can't change that. Now, what about the rest? Now is the time, you can sing it as it is, but I'm just trying to translate it into what I've been saying. It's the time for me to march upon the land. God's got a a ministry for me and for each one of you. He wants you to claim the ground in your ministry. Um, And he will give you the ground you claim and he will lead you on to victory and the world will see that Christ is Lord in your ministry. Verse 2, God is at work in you, his purposes to perform, building a kingdom of power, not of words, where things impossible to you at one time by faith can be possible to you, but give the glory to him. Verse 3, though you are weak, I'm talking about myself as well, his grace is everything you need. We made a clay, 2 Corinthians, is it chapter 4, something like that. But the treasure of Jesus is within your body, within your life. He turns your weaknesses into his opportunities so that the glory again goes to him. So as you sing it, let's put me in the first verse and then you can rest of it look at each other and say Christ is in you just just take it in because we so easily read this stuff sing this stuff and it goes in one ear and out the other this is really precious stuff